This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. All right, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast, part two of our episode on uh, what's relevant for old school EDH staples, stuff like that. So today, last portion, we're going to get into staple. What does it mean? How do we define it? Mm-hmm. What is like a hardline staple? What's more of a softline staple? Just to kind of get into the minutia and more into the weeds on what that word means, more yeah. or less. Basically, it depends what your definition of the word is, is. Yes. And magic form. Yep. Uh, blue dress. But uh, we're going to, like, looking at old school and reserve list is kind of difficult because there's not a lot of middle ground. You have some, like, outstanding cards like Grim Monolith and then some clunkers like skeletal ship or skeleton ship whatever that is right and so it's very polarizing but what i try and do for old school and reserve list stuff is very similar to what i like to do when i'm looking at standard cards or cards from supplemental sets first and i look for like immediately impactful cards or cards that are going to become impactful based on information we have so some quick examples of cards that were immediately impactful just by reading paradox engine panharmonicon Sunbird's Invocation, they all read to be immediately impactful, and they are, they were. And then cards that became impactful, something recently with Akoria and the keyword um, tokens, is Skullbriar, the walking elemental, because Skullbriar keeps tokens when it leaves. Uh, I believe the Ozolith just vacuums up plus one, plus one tokens, otherwise you could kind of look at that. But that's kind of where I I look overall, and to me, uh, regardless of whether it's old school reserve list or something brand new, Uh, this kind of impact represents to me some of the best specs as they'll see organic demand which means a true price and a lot of these might not be quick flips some of them might be like Skullbriar you could buy into and then move out like two weeks later so my exit strategy on these is a mid to longer hold and it allows me to let my specs mature on their own and focus on other things in Magic. It's less micromanagement of my specs overall because these are immediately impactful cards. I don't have to worry. For me, I look a lot more, I think I look long-term, such as Sarkin's Unsealing. Is it something that is immediately impactful? No, it should be, Yep. because it has a very powerful, impactful effect. Another example was, uh, and you picked this a couple weeks ago, Vicious Shadows from yep. Shards of Alara. It's something that has a very impactful effect on a board state. And for me, I tend to look a lot more at EDH staples. Uh, and much less with much less regard for the reserve list. Because yep. to me, the reserve list is funny money. You know, you yeah, throw enough yeah. shit at the wall, it's going to stick. You know, but Ember Wild Caliph, that card's garbage, but it's like four bucks now Why because not? somebody decided to mess around with the reserve list. Whatever. Uh, the thing is, with EDH staples, I play a lot more CEDH. So for me, it's really easy to do that. For casual EDH, is it big and dumb and does something Timmy like? Great. That's it. That's what I'm going for. Uh, Yeah, and that's that's what I tend to look for. I think the interesting thing that comes in is, does a card need eyes? And basically by that we mean how much exposure away from being worth money is this card? Mm -hmm. I tend to look, and I, I have two ways that I do this, cards that are clearly impactful when we get interaction with them. Okay. 
uh, that, you know, I always talk about this card's one card away from being busted in half. Yeah. So I try, I kind of look for those cards. Shadow of the Grave was one that I picked, I think, in year one that was a great example of this. You know, basically, if you all your cards you discarded, return them to your hand. That card's really like one card away from being busted. And that's something that I would target as a pick here. Mm -hmm. And is it something that is, the other one is, is it a color staple? By which I mean, does it do something that's clearly within the overarching design strategy of wizards? Is it a blue card that does literally anything? That it's okay. Within, yeah. It's it's within the design strategy, sure. What the Lit Yara card I picked that yep. doubles tokens because blue does that now? Why not? Yeah. Or, you know, Parallel Lives, which is, or was, a clearly green effect, or Branching Evolution, which is a clearly green effect. Uh, and that's a much more low-level look at things in terms of the casual EDH marketplace when I target. Yep. Uh, but that's, for me, that's what I look for when it's, does it need eyes? Is it one card away, or is it something that has casual exposure that just needs to see some movement in inventory or maybe have a card printed but already has somewhat of a price history. Yeah, I, uh, just thinking about this one. Like, for me, needs needs eyes um, is less about how close it is to going off and more that it's already relevant and really just needs to show up somewhere. So I define that as a spec, it's, you know, just because a card needs a little bit of a push in terms of visibility doesn't make it a bad spec. There's a lot of stuff that's like just below the waterline that is extremely good and extremely playable. It just needs a content creator to kind of push it forward. And there's examples of this uh, all over the place. Um, Exsanguinate is a really good example. It showed up on Star City Versus a couple of times and then just took right off. People just weren't playing it. They weren't paying attention to it for a while. And the moment it hit a content creator, you know, it, it blew up, you know, similar to the Saffron Olive effect. And, you know, Commander Any Con of the pirate stompy stuff. Yep. Commander content is coming out, you know, all the time. And eventually everything will get a look. Sometimes it takes multiple looks, but everything will get a look. And for me, that's what eyes uh, really, really means. Um, a good example of a card that needed visibility that we were able to get out ahead of, Paradox Haze. So that was a pick I made after the release of the Double Upkeep Sphinx, but before it got its commander content look, before the EDH rec feedback loop hit. We, we hit in that butter zone with the pick where we were able to get out ahead because once it got eyes, it took off. Similarly with Thousand Year Storm, you know, we picked that one a couple of years ago and we got out ahead of the Spellslinger demand and we were able to fall backwards into Magecraft this last set, right? So these were cards that just needed a little bit more of uh, that push. Um, something that needs eyes overall and is just below the waterline from the reserve list is something like Second Chance. That card was really good, and it was one card away from being busted, and eventually we got that in Hall of Heliod's Generosity. So that kind of speaks to your point, where that card was ready to go. It's a reserveless card. You could sit on infinite if you wanted to, because eventually, at some point, something's going to be able to recur enchantments ad nauseum, and eventually we got it. So that represents this like high-level reserveless card that you could look and say, hey, I want this instead of Wall of Kelp or, you know, whatever bits and bobs you have. And I think another interesting thing is when you look at cards like this, uh, prime example, and this is what I mention a lot, is Collected Company. Yep. 
this is a card that it's not reserveless, but it's definitely a staple, and it's a staple that improves, again, because of the overarching design strategy that Wizards of the Coast has, that we want to make increasingly aggressively costed dudes. Yep. And as long as they do that, that card stands to gain value long-term as yes. well. Is it a reprint risk? Sure, but everything not reserveless is. Yep. So it's, it's about looking at that and seeing the ebbs and flows and kind of getting ahead of that yeah um, I, I do want to go back and, and touch on like you you play more competitively EDH I'm more kitchen table focused in that regard so for me CEDH isn't really that much of uh, a draw when I'm looking at specs I know some of the things I look at some of the things I, I target can overlap but I haven't really found a, a robust and regular resource like EDH rec has been for the casual scene so for me I don't really kind of cater my specs towards CEDH and anything that overlaps has just kind of become a happy accident um, with I, I didn't read into this the gladiator format was just uh, announced today we have Oathbreaker that uh, was making a resurgence a little bit and uh, eventually I assume somebody will necro tiny leaders and at yeah. that point we're going to get a lot of this kind of cross domain cross uh, what do you want to call it cross format demand although it's all just spinoffs of the same format yeah middle school pre-modern stuff like that yeah and as far as targeting constructed formats for reserveless stuff goes it really is just looking at historics for me like yeah and needing eyes now for reserve for a reserveless card means finding what was good back then and what isn't being played now and kind of target that you know master core is a good example of that that card you know, ran formats in standard and extended. It didn't see a lot of play in middle school, but it's a reserveless card, so it commands a premium. Eventually, I think it took off, and if it hasn't, it will, because if it more people now, yeah. move in, yeah, then it's going to kind of pick up where it left off in those formats, you know? And I think that's the important thing when you're looking at old school especially, is, you know, and we touched on this last episode, historics are super important there. Yeah. And I think that you know, to bridge that to a more modern thing, looking for historic analogs yeah. is also very important when looking at this stuff. You know, last week I picked Pendrel Mists, and I said in my reasoning for it, you know, aside from whatever price stuff, this is basically the only other printing of Tabernacle that we will ever get. Yeah, yeah. And it's reserved list. But there's a historical analog for Tabernacle being really good yeah. and very impactful in EDH games. Yeah. Well, Pendrel Mist could be that. There you go. Yeah, and trying to apply a lot of this to old school is kind of a, a unique thought experiment because the reason old school is really popular and plays a lot differently than Magic did back then is because a lot of the deck building paradigms and the way we understand the game now didn't exist back then. So it's about applying current knowledge to these micro formats. And a lot of what you're looking at and what you could expect to kind of evolve out of the data that we had about those formats isn't really going to come to fruition because things have changed so much. Yeah, there's still Stompy decks and there's still Zoo decks and they resemble what used to be back then because the efficiency of 1-1s for 1 didn't really change. Scripps Rights is still going to be, be and Curative uh, Premier Zoo cards. You know, the Orc Goblin, like Mono Red Stompy deck, that's basically going to play the same. But uh, the deck, the Mono Black Control deck, things like that, they're being redesigned from the ground up. And so a lot of what you saw then isn't what you see now. And so uh, trying to cast this back and look at old school is, like I said, a very unique thought experiment. But there is still room to operate between old school cards and the reserve list because people do crazy things in that format to get ahead where they can based on what they're seeing. 
And I, I think it's also worth noting that on some of this stuff, uh, there is a point where you need to recognize that something has reached its ceiling. Mm -hmm. So when targeting stuff, I also want to look at, you know, is there room for growth here? Is yeah. there room for more playability? Is there a chance that this card gets something better? Second chance, for example, is there a chance we ever get something that does Hall of Heliod's Generosity better than Hall of Heliod's Generosity? Probably not. I don't think that ever happens. Yeah. Uh, so. You know, we already have Replenish. We already have Open the Vaults. Yeah, I think Open the Vaults gets enchantments back. Yep. Uh, like, we have effects like that. And we're not getting something similar to or better than Hall unless it's something like, I don't know, a Planeswalker that bounces an enchantment back to play. But do you think they're going to do that? And is it worth holding on to something like Second Chance that has yep. exploded this way? And that's, you know, when you talked about a mid to long term hold, I am also much more of a mid to long term hold on these. But I'm also very much, you know, did I get my margins? And is there a chance my margins improve much from here? Yeah. I think actually, if I remember correctly, when I picked Spoils of the Vault for the modern Adnaz deck, this is, you know, before they did my boy dirty. And I talked about the options set forth for specking on that deck, and the reason for Spoils of the Vault wasn't just because it was the crux of that deck, but it had a much higher ceiling than something uh, like Angel's Grace or Phyrexian Unlife, which were already expensive cards. Your percentage growth on Spoils, a four of staple on that deck, was going to be larger than either of those two cards. So the floor being lower, you can buy more copies get out at a higher percentage and make more profit overall if you're willing to take the time to do so. And I think that that's something that is kind of an individual basis as yeah. far as are you comfortable going for the low floor high ceiling or do you want the sure thing? Yep. And how deep do you want to go on those? I tend to go, you know, I I am a reserveless slumlord and I will scream that into the skies. I still have Grim Feast that I paid less than a dollar for that I keep finding. I have, I don't know how many Purgatories, Emberwild, Calyx, all this just absolute gutter trash. But that's what I like, is the low floor, high ceiling. Yep. That said, people have definitely made more money than me flipping Jewsums than I have off that Slumlord stuff for the last three years. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, take take it where it suits you, where you're more comfortable, basically. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I think the, the last big point we wanted to talk about, and we're kind of getting there, is when we look at these specs, can they stand on their own uh, for the longer term, you know, for the long haul? And for me, this is about organic demand, playability, and power level. So going back to the first point uh, that I made of immediately or recently impactful, um, those cards, can they stand on their own? And the Venn diagram for this stuff isn't quite a circle. It seems like it, but it isn't. But you look at things like Teferi's Veil, which spiked recently because it phases your creatures out in combat, so they ETB and re-trigger. It's recently impactful, but it cannot stand on its own. It requires a specific strategy to kind of post it up. Um, it's similar to the color-changing effects that we just saw uh, coming out of Commander Legends or somewhere out there. Like I forgot exactly what uh, is it uh, Commander you play where you just want to shift colors. But without that commander, if anything happens to that deck, then all these specs fold in the long term. So I look at cards that are broadly powerful. So if something were to happen, a banning, etc., de demand would remain. Subnote: I never expected Paradox Engine to get banned. Yeah, fair. I, so 
Look, there were clearly cards that needed to be banned over Paradox Engine that it took months later, but, you know, Arkham's Astrolabe existed for two years too long for Legacy to thrive. Anyways, I digress. So so for me, that's what I'm looking for when I'm looking for uh, a longer-term spec. Can it stand on its own? That's how I look at these specs and how I want to define them. Flash in the pan stuff is fine if you're going to churn it quickly, but that's not my style. Yeah. And I think that's, for me, it's something that, is it impactful on its own, or does it fit into a strategy? Mm-hmm. Uh, prime example, I picked Foil Jun 2 Stakes last year, yep. another one that did pretty well, and now I think it's buy listing for $15, and I bought all my copies for less than 5 It's a stacks card. Stacks as an archetype isn't going anywhere in EDH, yep. so I'm comfortable picking up that card. Sarkin's Unsealing goes with big, dumb red stuff. That's an archetype that isn't going anywhere in EDH. Those are things I'm comfortable picking in on because they're impactful and they're not dependent on one particular card. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ravager, Mox Opal. Ravager could not have existed in Modern without Mox Opal, which paid for hers as sins. And when Opal went, all of a sudden Ravager started tanking in value because you really only play it in Legacy and Vintage now. Yep. And that's that's an example of something I would stay away from. Obviously, that's a constructed format, different story. But it's you know, still a worthwhile theory to apply, though. Yeah, you know? no, for sure. You know, I, I are foil protean hulks worth money now? Yeah, absolutely. But if Flash gets banned, oh wait. Yeah, look Guess at what? you know we were talking about yeah. Mist Hollow Griffin in uh, Discord because Jarvis Yu was talking about uh, a Lauren Dex, or not sorry, yeah. Food Chain Dex in Legacy Chain, last yeah. week. And if you're going to spec on that deck, there's a lot of opportunity. But if you're specking on any of the combo pieces and something happens to Food Chain, then the floor is cut out from underneath you because those combo pieces don't work anywhere else. Yeah, and it's. It's something to pay attention to because, you know, and obviously Flash is banned, so Protean Hulk, whatever. Yep. But, you know, it, those are the types of things that you need to pay attention to is, is this actually directly dependent on something else? Or is this just good on its own? And that's something to pay attention to. A, a great example, uh, and this was a debate that was had ad nauseum when speaking about EDH. Was it Recurring Nightmare or was it Coca Show? Yes. Which one was it? Because that and was they were when both banned for a while, and now Coca shows off. Sorry, go ahead. Did you say that was when banned as a commander was a thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and and that's you know one of those can clearly exist in the format just fine without the other. Yeah. So if you banked on you know all of one that was dependent on the other card, well, guess what? Also, one of those was much better because reserve list. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, yep. But I I think that's something that merits as well, and that's something that comes from format knowledge. Uh, game knowledge and just understanding how interactions work, mm-hmm. which if you're lacking, just ask the community. You know, long term, do you think this card is good? Does this card need another card to exist in the format? Yeah. You know, I think that's important. Yeah, exactly. And like just talking through this, you know, you can kind of see why for me the uh, still needs one more card thing doesn't really work out unless it's a reserveless card, like I mentioned with Second Chance. You know, yeah. I, I'm not theory of cards that need more to function because I think they're bad specs up front. It's because I don't think that in the long-term aspect they're going to have the same demand that cards that don't require more to prop them up uh, are that's worth. Fair. So that's part of my strategy overall. And that's why, you know, when I talk through the, our um, 
my, my specs for the cast, I want to go through as many options as possible when it comes to uh, deck building archetypes. And I like casting that wide net for things that kind of fold into more than one archetype to ensure that we're covered. If something does happen to one, there is a fallback, uh, a safety net. And a lot of this also speaks to how I like to handle my specs, which is just set it and forget it. And I check in every couple of weeks or a couple of months a, as needed, or unless I see something just spikes ridiculously and then I shove it out the door. Sure. You know, I'm not looking for that quick that quick flip. So, you know, my, my ethos is going to be different than somebody else's when they somebody who makes these quick moves. I, I think that's also one of the differences is that, you know, when you take a look at those two strategies, because I'm fine with the one card away uh, and you prefer not to, there is a much more real possibility that my cards are never worth money when I spec on them. And I'm comfortable with that because I'm gambling on the upside. Yep. And that's something that you need to be okay with before you decide this is something you want to go with. Because you may be sitting on these cards forever. You may eventually reach the point where you're sitting on like 400 Sarkins on ceilings and you're like, well, I guess, you know, I'm just the Sarkins on ceiling guy from here on out. Cool. Yep. I, I don't want to be the seance guy. I don't want to be that guy. Because then Wizards memes you and reprints it in a Masters set and you're screwed. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that's something that you have to be comfortable with because it is a reality of something that can happen. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, make sure when you set out on the Slumlord path that that's, you're okay with it. Because while, yes, I trust that Wizards will do everything it can to screw up card design, I don't think that necessarily it happens with every card I pick. So, I, I understood and agreed. And I think a lot of this, you know, we keep talking about, you know, you got to pick your strategy and figure out what do you like to do, what op what works best for you and how you want to operate. And there really is like no wrong answer to how you want to operate and, and, and run your, you know, your gamut, you, you know, spend your money as you see fit. So I think overall a lot of this is going to be to flavor and so we just wanted to give you this kind of starting point you know this is where we are this is what works for us you know we take this kind of vendor perspective because this is you know what we're used to you don't just buy to flip immediately you buy to meet demand you know that that's our world is is purely supply and demand it's to not just buy to sell immediately into FOMO we want to you know, serve a larger customer base, have a larger, you know, inventory, you know, for the companies we work for. And, you know, this is how, you know, our company would survive instead of just, you know, quick flipping, which is a lot of hustle and grind. Yeah. Not to say that that's wrong for an individual, but this no. is just, you know, how, what we're used to and what works for us. Um, but I think I'm out of points to talk about on this. So if we're ready Likewise. for picks. All right, cool. You went first last week, I believe, right? Yes, I did. So it's all you. All right, cool, cool, cool. So again, we're sticking with EDH staples because why not? It's the theme of the day. I'm picking Cage Sun this week, and I'm going for the set version. Um, okay. So Cage Sun to me is actually uh, kind of interesting because I started with this weird bias on the card, I realized, as I was taking my notes. And I thought this was like really just for uh, creature decks because of the the plus one plus one and i also forgot this was not a symmetrical effect as i was writing this so you look at the stocks graph and it's kind of loopy but it always uh, 
retraces back to its high point, and we're headed back to that now, which is why I wanted to pick this. We're coming out of the doldrums that we saw over the summer. Um, the dip in March of 2020 was the mystery booster release of this card, and so we're finally recovering from that. The absolute best buying point would have been like December-ish when I started looking at this card, but I wanted to see a little movement before I really got in. Um, Biolus-specific movement. Um, so what I learned was that this card actually plays a lot better in multicolor decks that are just trying to go big. Generally speaking, uh, there's a number of creatureless strategies on here, on Wreck, that just need big mana as an artifact and that makes it a pretty wide open card. You don't really need to worry about the plus one plus one on it because you're playing a white deck or a blue deck or a red deck, which has Monoflare, but I'll discuss that in a moment. And you just need, you don't have access to these uh, mana flares, mana doublers, whatever you want to call them, these colors. And it's doing big things. So, you know, Avacyn, Angel of Hope is here. Phage the Untouchable is here. You know, they cost eight and seven, respectively. Uh, Patron of the Moon, that costs seven. Jinga Taxis, Korogger costs ten. You know, these are decks that require a lot of mana to do what they're doing, so they want to get as many, you know, mana rocks and doublers in here as possible. So, wide open card, like I said. Uh, this is a personal mana doubler through lands only, so it's not like mana reflections that actually doubles everything or Nyx Bloom Ancient. And um, this is a truly colorless artifact. You know, color CMCs, and it doesn't attach itself to any particular color because the choice is made upon resolution and has the ability to help every deck that wants to go big quickly get to their end goal. So this is best played in monocolor decks as we're seeing because it really only affects lands that produce mana of the chosen color and affects creatures of the chosen color. You could possibly jam this in a two color deck as long as your dominant color represents like the overwhelming majority of your spells. You're probably like 70-75% plus of one color. Um, and as I mentioned, primarily seen outside of red and black by the numbers. I actually ran the numbers on rec for all the uh, the generals seen. And it's like 500 white, 500 blue, 200 and change black, back to 500 for red, and uh, somewhere in the threes for green. And uh, these decks are extremely mana hungry and the generals and themes that play into the strategy of going big also benefit from the maximum number of mana dollars available, like I mentioned. Uh, the bonus that this is, you know, quote-unquote lord for your creatures is great but unnecessary for most of this stuff. And we do see it come into play for some of the tribal combat-centric decks that are on here, yeah. like Avacyn is, uh, can be attached to Angels. Nomada Grove Guardian on here is uh, in here for green, which is going to be like Sapperlings and Tree Folk. And it's useful there, but not necessary, so it's gravy. This is, uh, and at the agnostic nature of this card combined with the utility and personal nature of the mana doubling effect makes it a good look for any deck with a decently high average CMC. So that's basically what you're going for. It's just, you know, the big dumb of dumb decks. Uh, so as far as the timeline is concerned, so CK buy quantity went up almost 100% in the four months uh, that I had this on my list. We were CK was buying 23 day of. They were buying over 40 or about 40 on Friday uh, when I noted this. Uh, but the buy price hasn't really recovered from the last dip. It's still about $5. So we're on track to break past the previous retail high of approximately $10, like I showed on the stocks graph. 
as we charge into that, I expect the buy price to follow shortly behind it as quantities are removed from the open market. So probably in the, in the next, like I'd say, two to three weeks is when we'll start finally seeing the, uh, the buy price go up. Though I checked today and it does look like part of the outstanding number on CK was actually filled. They're down to buying 29 from, 25 from almost 40. So 15 over the weekend. But again, quantity is still being removed from the open market. It's taken four months to retrace the price and I expect within the next three to six months to reach, uh, well, sorry, we'll reach and overtake the previous record high of $10, which means if we were an early adopter, we should be able to sell to buy us for a profit at the end of the run, which is six months, but much earlier if you sell into the open market. So if you buy in now and sell into TCG Player Facebook in a couple of weeks, you'll be able to make your profit faster. Um, as I did note, the card has been reprinted in Commander 2014, Commander Anthology Volume 2, which was in May 2018, and is in the LGS version of Mystery Boosters that came out in March of 2020, and that accounts for both of the major dips on stocks, and I'll bring this up again. So the dip right after Dominaria and the dip right before, or no, sorry, uh, right before Aquaria are where... Uh, this was reprinted and you can see it's retraced every time to about ten dollars so uh, I would ex uh, I would expect to see a reprint into commander product within the next year or two but that doesn't worry me at all cage sun recovers incredibly well from reprint price depression which like chromatic lanterns though I do not think this is a card you can ride into the sunset you need an exit strategy my personal one would be in that six month time period <clears throat> I think it's really sad as touched on it's completely agnostic uh in fact most of the people i know that play it play it in big mana decks one of which the only creature is the general yep so you know the lord is an upside obviously in green you've got a little bit more upside because most of the creatures you're going to lord over are probably mana dorks whatever but i think you know cards like this also fit into that timmy mold of what we touched on earlier it's impactful yep it's got a history of being impactful, and it only gets more impactful the more stuff like that they print. Mm -hmm. So I think long-term, it's incredibly good. I think that, yeah, you're probably looking at about a six to eight month reprint. It also has to be reprinted in the supplemental because it is plain specific. Yes. Uh, because it is a Cage Sun on Mirrodin, yeah, which, God, if we ever go back to Mirrodin again, I think Wizards has just given up. It's so. also super clunky in a draft format. Not to say you couldn't do it because Modern Reflections was in um, Ultimate Masters. Yeah. But this is not only a mana doubler effect, it's also uh, a creature. Yeah, it's it's an end buff, like It so tops like, out your creature curve. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So... Like I said, I, I think our, our time our timelines are similar. My personal one, like I said, I'm looking at six months, and that's where I would really start to keep an eye on this for buy listing, um, just because it's, it's not a cyclical nature in terms of reprints. It's not like they do it every two years. They waited four years between the first Commander uh, reprint, 2014, and uh, the Anthology reprint, and then two years from there. Um, I'm not worried about the, the, the timing on that overall. I'm worried about the fact that this card doesn't get a lot of eyes, like we mentioned before. You've got to rely on essentially EDH rack to tell you that you need the card. And we have got kind of like peak demand now, or we're going to be heading into it shortly. And that's where I want to be. That's why in six months I want to be out to buy us because the open market should essentially dry, which leads which will lead people to vendors, which means our buy price on it's gonna go. So that's where I'm looking. All right, so mine, 
Uh, and this is kind of an interesting thought experiment. So shout out to Dan for this one. My buddy, we were talking about reserve list stuff about a month and a half ago, looking at stuff that might be targetable, whatever. So I started paying attention to this card. I love this card. I love blowing up all the permanents. My favorite card in Magic is Obliterate. That's not the pick. The pick is Apocalypse from Tempest. Yep. It is unique because it's the only red board wipe that deals with enchantments. Uh, it is also reserved list. So the interesting thing about this, and if you take a look at the stocks graph, so you see that in February of 21, our average hit $40, which is the all-time high. Mm -hmm. If you look at the low, the low was stagnant at that time and only started increasing recently, whereas the average dropped. So I started paying attention when we were talking about supply on this card. And the interesting thing is that coinciding with this increase of low, we're starting to see more copies listed. Yep. Which is interesting because while low is going up, the available quantity is also going up, which means these are selling somewhere. They're not to me. I know that for a fact. I have not bought up all of this card. Dan has not bought all of this card. People I know have not bought up all of this card. I don't know where it's going. The other interesting thing is if you take a look at Card Kingdom, Card Kingdom still has copies available at near mint below TCG low. So this is an example of when we talked a couple weeks ago about catching market manipulation mid-event. Yep. This is a prime example of that. So this is an opportunity for, you know, first off, this is a completely unique effect on the reserve list that is completely unique for the color. So that makes it viable on its own. When you add to the fact that you have something like this market manipulation going on, it's something that you can get in ahead of now. So the other interesting thing is that while the quantity of sellers going up has increased, so has the quantity of sellers selling over four on TCG. When I first, when we first started looking at this about a month ago, there were four sellers with over four quantity. There's now 11. Yep. There were, or sorry, this is LP or near mint yep. or above. Yeah, that's what I got uh, filter for. When looking at total listings, Last week when I checked, we were at 46 total listings, and the low was 14. We're now at 51 total listings with a low at 1637. When you go to the seller portal side, you can see that they have moved at this number. You can look at eBay and see that they have moved at this number, and yet we have copies available on Card Kingdom for less than TCG low. Huh. So something, something is going on with this card. I don't know what. Someone is definitely behind the scenes messing with it, though, and I think that that is very fascinating, and it's merited me. I have bought a couple. I haven't bought large quantity. I'm in its sub-10 copies. But this is something that, you know, when we talked about catching this stuff ahead of the time and being ahead of the curve, just because you're paying attention, this was something that showed up and we were, you know, wait a second, what's going on with this card? There's all these weird things happening. And Card Kingdom's buying it for, like, $8 right now, and they're only buying like six, I think. It's not a lot. So I think that timeline-wise, based on what we've seen with reserve list, you know, we're in kind of a valley for most of the rest of the reserve list now. This one's actually, you know, gradually ticking up recently. You know, we kind of hit a plateau in like March and then up a little down and we've been back and forth a little since and we're on our way back up on the stocks graph. So I'd be looking at, honestly, Reserve list fall, just like every other year. Yep. 
if you want to get out at reserve list fall, I think you could easily profitably buy list this card for twenty to twenty-five dollars if you get in now for the fifteen sixteen, which making five to ten dollars is not a lot, sure, but that's buy list. I think TCG by that point hits forty bucks. So if you wanted to out on Facebook, you wanted to out to an LGS that pays seventy percent or whatever, go for it. You can trade it out for profit. It's just, it's an interesting thing that I caught. And I immediately grasped onto it because this is something that doesn't happen very often where you catch it mid-event, so to speak. Uh, I think that personally, my copies, I'm probably going to offload not this fall, which is, I think, your first exit window about six to eight months from now. But next spring, when we hit tax season and stuff starts spiking again. Got it. Uh, So probably about 12 months for me personally. I think the start of the timeline is about six to eight months, though. And you've got a window in there of when it happens. Uh, I just think it's something that's going to be fascinating to watch, especially considering there's all these atypical things happening where you have quantity increasing, price increasing. Some vendors have it for less and they just haven't been hit yet, which when if you've ever seen staged buyouts, Car Kingdom, Star City, Abu Games always get hit first because they want to wipe out the mass market copies before they affect TCG, which is so much easier to manipulate. Yep. And that's just not the case here, and it's just fascinating to me to see this happen. Yeah, no, this is really interesting. You know, a lot of the picks that I've had over the last couple of weeks, we've seen an increase of quantity on TCG Player with a rising market value, and it just seems like because Biolist and Card Kingdom have kept up, that it's people essentially outing their copies for profit because now the card is moving. They're able to actually turn that card into cash. And we're seeing, the, we saw the open market function like the open market, whereas here, you know, there might be some going ons, you know, behind the scenes. People might be shuffling this card around and just hoarding until the end of time. You know, they're, the the numbers on this are pretty interesting when you start looking at the price overall. And it looks like there might be a couple trip wires set in here so that as copies exit the market at a certain price, we're going to see this card actually reload at a much higher price. And I don't mean like the copies that are up here for 250, 400 and yeah. a grand. I mean the ones floating in like the 40s um, through 80s. You know, yeah. These might actually just be tripwire copies to let people know like, hey, TCG has been emptied of reasonable copies the one that we said is a tripwire finally sold. Let's push the market at a value close to that so we can out our copies at, you know, four, five, six, whatever X. Yeah. So interesting, I thought, yep. uh, and wanted to mention it because I, I think stuff like this is solid, especially because, you know, either someone with one person with incredibly deep pockets or a group of people are doing this. Nope. Either way, you know, hey, someone, someone knows something. I'll do it. Yeah, exactly. And, and we can get on this, get in on this from the outside. Absolutely. And, you know, there, no shame in that at all when no. you catch something like this. So you know, I, I think it, it, it's great. It's an interesting call out. And, you know, if this is something you, you're fine riding out, you know, you have the, the time and the money to just kind of set these things aside, by all means, move in. Uh, also, shout out to Chudwork LLC, who uh, has a copy. Great, great TCG portal name. Yep. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was looking at this Jank MTG cards. It's also really good. Or J and C yeah. MTG cards. Jank Magic. Yep. Great celebrity. But yeah. I think that's going to be it for this, unless there's anything else you want to touch on. 
Nope, we're good. Then I think that's going to end the cast this week. And we are at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon. And you can find the audio podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, not SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, and the video version on YouTube. So for MTG Cabalcast, I am at Halt, I am Reptar on Twitter. And you are? Percy Sizzler. We'll see you next week.